Well, for some time we've been involved in a verse by verse and chapter by chapter study in Paul's letter to the Colossian believers. And I'd like you to turn there again. We're now in Colossians chapter two. We're going to be reading beginning at verse 16 through to verse 23, not only for our scripture reading this morning, but for our focus as we continue the study of God's Word here in Colossians chapter 2. Now, I said we would begin to read together at verse 16, and you'll notice the first word there is the word therefore. So we are sort of jumping in the middle of a context. Let me just say that the immediate preceding context was a declaration of the crucifixion of Christ And how it is personally applied to every true believer, where he took our sins in his own body and nailed them to the tree, where he took all the decrees of a holy God, the law of God, and nailed that to the tree as well, becoming our righteousness for us. And so we could begin at verse 16 saying, in the shadow of that glorious cross. Believe it, and therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Why is if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure The appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. This is a weighty portion of Scripture, and of course it is set in the first century situation that Paul confronted with religionists who were disrupting and undermining the true faith and trust in Christ that the Colossians first had when they put their trust in Christ alone. We want to look at it and we need the Lord's help to understand as much of it as we possibly can. And of course, we need the Holy Spirit's ministry to apply it to each of our own hearts and lives today and to the church at large. So let me ask the Lord for that help right now. 
Father, we do ask for the very real working, moving of your Holy Spirit in these moments. Father, certainly as I would seek to teach its meaning, I cannot do this apart from the filling and the anointing of your Holy Spirit to make the truth that which can enter into every heart and mind here. So we need you. We know that the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it can pierce into the innermost parts of our being, and we desire that. We also know how much we need your working to accomplish your purpose, and so we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Having uh, read our text today, I want to ask or begin with a question. And the answer, which I hope will come perhaps as a jolt to uh, one's almost universal way of thinking when they hear the question, I do hope by it to capture your attention to a very important issue. The question is this. Is biblical Christianity a religion? Is biblical Christianity a religion? And I dare say that most people without hesitation would say, of course it's a religion. It's a very big one in terms of statistics and numbers of those who profess Christianity among the other religions of the world. Perhaps you have more than once in your life been asked to identify your religion. And you have said, Christian. Or perhaps you were asked to be even more specific. So many of you, no doubt, answered Protestant. Unless, of course... There may be a neighbor here this morning who is a Roman Catholic. Maybe beyond that, you were asked for a subcategory. Uh, Are you a Baptist, a Methodist, a Presbyterian? Well, you name it. Sometimes when I tell people that I am the pastor of a Good Shepherd Church, they will ask me if I'm Lutheran or Episcopalian. Scholarly researchers tell us that while there are hundreds of different kinds of religions in the world, they also are quick to tell us that the five major religions are these. There is Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. But is biblical Christianity a religion? Certainly there are many who identify themselves as Christians who religiously attended church, have been baptized, take communion on a regular basis, and do their best, they will tell you, to live by the golden rule and the precepts of Jesus. So, yes, I would say, based upon 
just mere observance that Christianity is a religion. But that wasn't the question. If you were listening with some special care, the question had a qualifier. I asked you if biblical Christianity is a religion. Or let me put it this way. Do you think it was the purpose of Jesus Christ, who was the very Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross to be a sacrifice for sins, and who rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and according to the Bible, is right now seated at the right hand of His Father in heaven, praying for you and me. Do you think it was His purpose to establish a religion? I don't think so. In fact, searching the Scriptures, I know that it was not His purpose to be the founder of another among the world's religions. Any more, by the way, than it was the purpose of Old Testament Jehovah to establish a religion of Judaism. Even though, it is true, Judaism, failing to recognize its true Messiah, has in fact become a religion. How often from this very pulpit have I sought to rebuke the thought that some may still have. That they have come to church today to practice their choice of religion. While tragically failing to have a personal, vital, authentic relationship with the Savior the risen and living Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to say again, biblical Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. And the difference between the two is as great as the span between hell and heaven itself. This is serious business. All religion, even the tenets of Christianity itself, is worthless religion if the worshiper has never been born from above by the Spirit of the living God. I think I want to repeat that. All religion, even the tenets, the teachings of Christianity itself is worthless religion if the worshiper has never been born from above by the Spirit of the living God bringing true saving faith in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' day, there could hardly have been a more religious man than Nicodemus. Remember him? 
I can tell you that Jesus himself would have gladly worshipped Jehovah at Nicodemus' synagogue. I believe that Jesus would have respectfully acknowledged that Nicodemus was a sincere teacher of Old Testament law and would have respected his role as a ruler even among his fellow Jews. And when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, our Lord had no great moral charge to make against him. Nicodemus is one of the few that came to Jesus for which Jesus had nothing to say in terms of any particular sin or transgression even. But Jesus did say to this man, you need to be born again. For there was nothing, absolutely nothing, in all of Nicodemus' religious experience, even as a Jew, that could bring him into a right relationship with God. If he was ever to see, if he was ever to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. That on the authority out of the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. This, Jesus said, is impossible for man. True, he cannot cause himself to be born again any more than he caused himself to be born of woman. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, this does require the sovereign, merciful and mysterious inward working of the Holy Spirit, applying the work of Christ on the cross to his soul. The wind will blow where it wills, Nicodemus. You can't see it, but it accomplishes its purpose. So it is. Everyone who is born of God is born of God because of this invisible yet real and inward working of God's Holy Spirit. Bringing what the theologians call regeneration or the new birth experience. No one comes to the Father But that way, I say again, it is not religion, but relationship and biblical Christianity rightly understood is not a religion. It is the story of the resurrected Christ who to this present moment is still building his church one graced believer at a time. On the ground and the basis of his own blood. And he does so for the glory of his own name. That's what the Bible teaches. And this is the great concern of the Apostle Paul. For the Colossian believers. And it is the alarm that he sounds. And believes that it needs to be heard in every new generation of professing believers. That's why Colossians is one of the 66 books that make up the one inspired word of God. It is as though Paul is saying in this epistle to believers in every generation and to the people at Good Shepherd Church gathered here this morning. He's saying, whatever you do, do not let your completeness in Christ be substituted by anything else. 
Don't let your life-giving relationship to God through Christ fossilize into just another religion among the false religions of the world. Now, let me be clear. I do try to do that on most occasions, to be clear. We are all, as true believers, to do some things, may I say, religiously. I mean, I really do hope that you read your Bible religiously. I hope that you pray religiously. That is, that you have developed the habit of praying faithfully. And that your prayers would not be mere words of religious piety. And yes, I certainly hope that you attend church religiously. But I hope that church attendance is not your religion. Lest you think that religion or religious practices like reading your Bible or praying, that those things could ever, ever win the approval of God when it comes to the forgiveness of your sins and eternal salvation. You can be doing even the right things and doing them religiously and fall short of the gospel so that even your best works are your righteousness, which the Bible says are filthy rags in the sight of God. Now, the workers of religion in Jesus day took issue with all would take issue with all that I have just said. In fact, religionists today today would take issue with what I just said. But in that day, they argued with Jesus himself when he said to the religionist, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. See, today, I think he'd say you could have the bumper sticker on your car that says Jesus is Lord. But everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will not necessarily enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Today we'd say, didn't we preach in your name? In your name, did we not cast out demons? And in your name, did we not even perform many miracles? Well, that's all possible, apparently. That's quite an impressive religious resume. But Jesus responded to those very people with these words. Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Apparently, it is possible to do some things religiously, even good and right things, even possible to do them in the name of Jesus. And at the end of the day, or more tragically, at the end of life, be identified by Christ himself as a worker of iniquity. So even remarkable religious activity may be done by workers of iniquity. We say, this is 
tough language. How about the time the same deeply religious Jews said to Jesus proudly that the founder of their religion was Abraham. They said it in this way to Jesus. They said, we are Abraham's children. I wonder how many of you remember how Jesus responded to that religiosity. I'll tell you how he responded with these words. You are of your father, the devil. In your religious fervor, it is his work you are doing. And not my father, which is in heaven. So it seems to me to be a fairly serious and a very weighty issue as to how we individually might answer the question. Is biblical Christianity just one among many religions? Now, come back to this portion of Colossians, which was our scripture reading. Once again, what we are confronting is the Gnostic heretics and their mixed bag, remember, of convoluted teaching and even mystical and religious practices. For our purposes, I'm not going to burden you again with the specifics of the Gnostic religion, except to point out the poor substitutes it offered in place of the abundant life promised to those who find their fulfillment in Christ. Uh, There are technical names for these worthless religious notions. Paul is uh, refuting ritualism, the ritualism involved in something we would call legalism. He confronts the problem of mysticism, which is probably still in our day the biggest uh, deceiving uh, work among uh, professed Bible-believing churches. Uh, They wouldn't call it mysticism today, but it's the same ancient heresies. And then Paul uh, will address, remember was reading those words about self-abasement and what's all that about? Uh, That is called asceticism. So these are, I know, technical terms. The legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, those are kind of universal ingredients that you find in most man-made religions. Now, we're not going to go for our dictionaries at this point, and I know you're relieved that we're not. We leave that for another time. In fact, instead of reading the verses again, let me just give you the grocery list of religious activity promoted by the popular Gnosticism of the day. It has its counterpart in almost every form of vain and worthless religion in our day and even corrupted Christianity as in our day. Paul used descriptive words and phrases like these. Just get the sense of it with the words. Here's what we read about. He mentions food, drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbath days. That sounds like religious stuff, doesn't it? He uses terms like self-abasement, which included in those days and in ours, things like fasting, wearing itchy clothes to make oneself deliberately uncomfortable, kneeling on glass, as Martin Luther once did, Sleepless nights of mantra-like praying. Praying through is the modern way of suggesting that we can force God to pay attention to us. The worship of angels. 
People who boast in their visions, he says. Oh, Lord, deliver us from the modern day prophets with their visions who depart from what has already been revealed in God's word. And then he says, and this this makes me think of those three monkeys. I have little statues of these three monkeys on the windowsill in my study to remind me that uh, I should at least try to do as good as the monkeys. You know, what is it? They they hear no evil. And one monkey has fingers in his ears. Uh, they look upon, they see no evil. Another monkey has his eyes covered. And the third one is they, they speak no evil. That's verse 20, isn't it? Religious rules of order like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So, in effect, we have one of the best definitions, I think, in this portion of Colossians for man-made religions. As he sums up that list of religious stuff. And he says in verses 21 and 22, verse 21, I think, could have been written. I'm sorry to say by a Baptist Sunday school teacher uh, out of my life from many years ago. Don't get me wrong. I appreciated all of my Sunday school teachers growing up. But I grew up in a generation of Baptist kids who, from what they heard so often, might have concluded in our somewhat less than biblically informed minds that to be a good Christian means you do not handle that, you do not taste this, and you do not touch. Or as us kids used to kid, we don't, kids, uh, we would kid, uh, we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't do what the other guys do. I'm a good Christian. (laughs) I got the impression in that day being a Christian meant those things. A list of do's which was amazingly shorter than the list of the do nots. You know what I'm talking about, some of you. But then Paul says in verse 22, he says, these kinds of things are merely in accordance with the commandments and teachings. Let me ask you, does it say they are in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of God? What does it say there in verse 22? No, not God. These are the commandments and the teaching of men. This is the best verse in all the Bible for one way of describing worthless religion. It's all about what man says we must do or must not do. If we're ever going to gain whatever it is we're seeking, I don't know, eternal life, karma, you name it. That truth, quite frankly, exposes the human founders of all false religion, as well as all counterfeit ways of trying to get right with God. Wouldn't you have thought it was enough that in the apex of man's history, a promise would be fulfilled that was made to Eve, the seed of the woman, will deal with the problem that the serpent created and crush the serpent's head. Jesus is that seed of the virgin woman who came in the fullness of time and declared not a list of do's and don'ts, but said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And there is no other way. Therefore, there is no other religion. 
if religions consider to be a way. For no one can come to the Father. You finish it for me. What did Jesus say? But by me. Verse 23 tells us that religion, especially big religion, can be quite impressive to the masses. We say, how is it that countless numbers of millions of people do fervently, some even lay down their lives, devoted to their religion? When verse 23 takes the mask off and says, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. I can't tell you how many professing believers in Christ I have had say to me over the years that so-and-so, pastor, surely must be a Christian because look at how devoted they are. And I've had to come back and say, and where in the Bible does it say that devotion to one's religion produces anything? Let's read the rest of verse 23. I'll go back to the beginning of verse 23. This is a, an important verse, and it happens to be the last verse in chapter 2 before we come to chapter 3 next Lord's Day. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom, but look at it. In self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of how much value? What does he say? But are of no value against the problem of sin. Inward sin. Or he calls it fleshly indulgent. He says no value. I borrowed this morning's title for our study from that verse, Worthless Religion. Religion that can't get you to heaven. And religion that can't even deal with the real problem of inward sin. How many, like Martin Luther, I mentioned him earlier, learned that you could move into a monastery. You could put on a hair shirt Fast and pray. Make your confessions and do your rosary. Do your many rituals. But that you could not, Martin Luther would learn, somehow check your sin nature at the door. It follows one right into, today we would say, it follows one right into the sanctuary. Christ alone. Bringing a new creation out of spiritual death and depravity. He alone is the answer. And He will not be made into a religion. He is a person. And He must be personally trusted to do what needs to be done for you and in you to bring you to God, there is no other way. Verse 19, if you'd glance back there, warns that the only way to avoid, this is for us Christians, it was for the believers at Colossae, the only way to avoid the religion trap is to, quote, 
Hold fast to the head. Who's that? That is Jesus, my friends. The Lordship or the Headship of Jesus, from whom the entire body, that is the true body of Christ, the church, being supplied and held together, he says, grows not into a religion, but grows into something organically alive, grows with a growth which is from God. And so to God be the glory. In fact, let me give you a diagnostic tool. One of the quickest and most efficient ways to detect the religion versus relationship problem so that, like some of the Colossians, you too might not drift. One of the quickest and most efficient ways to detect whether religion is replacing the relationship is how you come to think about your right standing with God on any given day. How you got there in the first place and how you hope to have a right standing with God on Monday morning. This is the quick diagnostic tool. Who, in that process, gets the glory? Who gets the glory? For where you are any given day in relationship to the living God. Now listen to me. Religion will always, always issue credit to man, even as it robs God of His glory. But show me a sinner who really does know that he is saved by grace alone, and I'll show you a sinner who every day rejoices in his salvation, but is careful to give all the glory to God alone. Or the cry of the Reformation, soli Deo, glory, to God alone be the glory. The salvation that is biblical is a salvation that will not allow even the slightest kind of boasting that no man shall boast in anything but pure grace alone. And it is grace not only the day that your eyes were opened to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. It is the grace by which you must live your Monday morning, no matter how many years you have been a believer. The moment you think there is something to take hold of and offer to God as a form of merit, you are not practicing biblical Christianity. You are practicing religion. Now, look out for the religion trap. Don't forget that Paul was cautioning true believers. They were not and we are not exempt from a subtle shifting away from our foundation. When we began with trust in Christ alone, 
But how often, somewhere along the way, we fear we must come to God with something of our own performance in order to gain His favor or even maintain His care for us. No wonder the Scriptures tell us that one of the cures for that as servants of God, and we are servants of God, and that is by grace, he says, and when you have done absolutely everything you were supposed to do as one of his servants. By the way, how many of you did that this week? You did absolutely everything you were supposed to do as a servant of the Most High God. And even if you had and you didn't, say, the Scriptures say, that you are at the end of the day an unworthy servant. That amazing. Oh, the grace of God is the chief doctrine given to us for our humility. Why we would ever want to move from it to offer our own sour grapes to God, I do not know. Except that is the desire of our flesh. We still struggle with the inward workings of sin that loves religion. And almost will do anything to avoid the intimacy of relationship with Christ. That's why you can have devotions every day and be in every prayer meeting. And never miss a communion Sunday. And be far from God. God forbid. Listen, folks. I'll talk about myself since I've been hitting on you kind of heavy here. I want you to know that if, if my relationship to the Lord had to be based any day on his good opinion of me, then I would have much to fear. But thankfully and wonderfully and yes, incredibly, my relationship to the Lord every day of my life is based upon his good opinion of his own dear son who loved me and gave himself for me. My acceptance, all of it, is in the Beloved, who is the Son of God. My acceptance is in his love for me. And that love, listen, differs not one iota from the love that God the Father has for his own Son. That's how full my acceptance. You don't think, I hope you don't think, I hope I don't think I could ever come to this pulpit and preach this gospel, somehow getting myself in a place of usefulness in any sense, apart from the grace of God, all, all of grace. In fact, my prayer before we began this service today, down on my knees behind my desk, was to simply confess again, and I've done this almost every Sunday morning for over 30 years, Lord, you know I am not worthy to take your word into my mouth and share it with these people. So I come to you for fresh cleansing by the blood of Christ. And what I'm about to ask you to do, Lord, for those people and for my own soul... I ask based on the merits of the perfect performance and righteousness of Christ alone. No other way would I dare ask the Lord to make me ready to be here this morning 
declaring these truths to you. Those four or five pages I can't preach this morning because of the clock. Except to remind you, why would we want religion when we have the blessedness of a relationship with a wonderful, wonderful, living Lord and Savior who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Why would we want anything else?